Well, if you've been with us the last uh, several weeks, or months, I should say, in our study of Matthew, uh, as, as, since January, I think, wow, uh, then you know we've been talking a lot about Jesus, and we're a church, so I think that's a good thing, uh, but you know, who is he? Thank you for that one laugh, that was helpful. Um, <laughs> who is he? What is he like? Uh, what is he all about? And now that we're about, now we're 12 chapters in, and I think it's fair to say, uh, no matter where you ultimately stand on Jesus, that he is a pretty polarizing person. Uh, you either give him everything or you give him nothing. You either nod along with him as he speaks or you shake your head and you turn your back and you walk away. You either follow after him or you run away screaming from him. You either fall down and worship him or you plot to kill him. And regardless of where we stand, whether we claim to be followers of, of Jesus or not, it's, it's very hard to stay comfortable around him for very long. He pushes us, he challenges us. He, and all the while, every conversation uh, demands a new response from us. Every story, every teaching that Matthew records, we're asked again, we're asked anew, will you love this person? Will you love this man or will you hate him? Will you obey him or will you abandon him? Will you leave him? And our, our passage this morning that you just heard read is no different. I'm not going to lie. This is a really tough passage. It's really long. It's really confusing. And I'm breaking every preaching rule by telling you that up front. But I want you to know it's, an, it's important. Because what this passage really does is it gives us a picture. It shows us so clearly the, the diff, how different people approach Jesus. And really, by extension, what are, what are our options as we approach him, what are our options as we consider Jesus ourselves? And there are lots of ways I think we could summarize this idea from this passage, but the clearest summary in my mind from this passage of the whole thing, and I don't, I'm not sure you're going to like it, but this is it, is that Jesus is either the devil or he's your brother. Jesus is either for you, the devil, or he is your brother. Now, here's maybe why you don't like it. If you're not a Christian and you're here, my guess is it's not because you think Jesus is the devil. That just sounds extreme. You wouldn't put it that way. But what we'll see as we look is that no matter why we reject Jesus, no matter what the reasons are, what we would call him, the end result is always the same. And if you're a Christian, and you'd never call Jesus the devil, but that doesn't mean that in our own ways we don't reject him. That doesn't mean we, maybe we're not conscious of it, but, but there, are, there, there are parts of our lives and parts of our hearts and our inner being where we live as if Jesus is a liar, where we live as if we shouldn't trust him and what he says. And so we need to take this seriously too. So if you haven't turned to Matthew 12 yet, you can do that now. It's the first book in the New Testament, chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Now, just before this story we're about to get into, if you were here last week, you know uh, that story ended with the Pharisees, who are the Jewish teachers, the religious authorities in Jesus' day, that story ended with them beginning to plot to kill Jesus. They get together and they say, we've got to kill him. He's too dangerous. He's too influential. He's, he's, we've, got, we've got to get rid of this guy. And so Jesus knew that. He withdrew because he wasn't ready to die. Now, this is the big spoiler alert for the New Testament. Jesus dies. Uh, that's not the end of the story, but the Pharisees get their wish. But Jesus knows his time has not yet come. So he withdraws. He tells people, don't talk about me. 
Don't force the issue with people. I'm not yet ready for that. And then sometime later, Matthew doesn't tell us how long we come to our passage today, where a man is brought before Jesus who is possessed uh, demonically and it's causing uh, blindness and muteness. And Matthew doesn't really give us a ton of detail about where this guy came from or basically uh, Matthew just says, oh, and by the way, Jesus healed him, no problem. And he keeps moving on. And uh, because the point of the story is what comes next. The crowd is astonished at what they've just seen and they begin to ask themselves, can this be the son of David? Can this be the Messiah we've been waiting for? And the Pharisees, they are picking up on this and they say to one another, the only explanation for this, the only explanation for Jesus' power and his authority is that he must be in league with Satan. He, he must, this must be an inside job. This is a trick. He, somehow he is using Satan's power to cast out demons. Now, before we get into how we too can make Jesus the devil in our lives, as, we, as the Pharisees clearly do, I want to pause for just a moment because my hunch is, even as we read this scripture, maybe even as you're listening to me describe it, there may be folks in this room who are very skeptical uh, when it comes to the supernatural, whether that's demonic or, or whatever it is. They're, they're skeptical of the supernatural, and I get it. Uh, and this is a really uh, tough pill for us to swallow in our Western culture, I think. This, the waters we swim in, we just, these aren't the categories we think in. That's not... That Western secular worldview just kind of says no to this stuff. So I, I get it, it's hard. So, I, so before I lose you, I just, I just want to give you two thoughts on this before we move on. Um, I just want to point out first that rejecting the supernatural and the miraculous is a philosophical assumption. It is not a scientific conclusion. It's not. And for most of the world today, especially outside of the West, for most of the world, most people in the world, belief in supernatural, the good, in good and evil, is common knowledge. It's like everybody's like, yeah, of course, of course, there's, there's supreme good, there's, there's evil out to get us. This, this, isn't a, this, this assumption that you may have is not a universal one. It's a predominantly Western, actually, and white assumption. So, and if you want to say, well, those cultures that still believe in this stuff, they're, you know, they don't have the science and the, you know, they're inferior to where we're at scientifically and knowledge-wise. I mean, if you want to say that, that's on you. I'm not going to say that. You, you, if that's, you have to reckon with the fact that most of the world disagrees with you on this one. Second, and this is more experiential, but I think it's still important because it just feels like there's someone out there spurring on evil. And you may disagree, but I can't shake the sense that when, when we encounter real evil, true evil in the world, it has a personality to it. And Robert Jensen, he, he puts it this way in his own journey of faith and skepticism, especially around the supernatural for him. He says that there does seem to be somebody out there laughing at us. I was very skeptical about the existence of Satan until I made that observation. The disasters that happen could just be disasters, but we seem to be mocked by them. And we, we can all see that there's evil in the world, everybody, but we're mocked by it. What does that mean? It, it, we're surprised by it. We're shocked by it. We're horrified by it. And you've got to ask yourself, if we are simply the byproduct of a material process, if we are the byproduct of, of a random evolutionary process, 
and there's no such thing as good or evil. We made those up. There's no such thing as natural and supernatural. There's, there's just a world I can see. Then why is evil so evil? Why after millions of years of living with it, why is it still so unnatural to us? Why are we so repulsed by it? Why is it so counterintuitive to us? And, and the Bible's contention, and, and I agree, is that we were not designed for evil. That's why we don't like it. And we have an enemy. We have an enemy. Now, hear me. If you're still struggling to accept the demonic, that's still really hard for you, that's okay. I'm not here to convince you of that. That's not the purpose of this sermon. Don't reject Jesus because of that, okay? Stay with us. Stay with me. Because the real point here is that there are lots of reasons, there are lots of ways to reject Jesus, and all of them, according to Matthew, are bad reasons. That's what Matthew wants to say. There are lots of ways to make Jesus the devil like the Pharisees do. I think there, there are three here I want to focus on that are in this story, three ways we can make Jesus the devil. And the first way is just outright rejection. Just you can, you can outright reject him. It's perhaps the most obvious. This is the attitude that says, Jesus, I don't even want to listen to you. I don't even want to. I'm done. And, and this is, you see very clearly, this is, this is where the Pharisees are. They're backed into a corner. They have just witnessed a miracle, one of many they've seen Jesus do throughout the book of Matthew. They have no way to explain it. All they have left is the devil. And so it's like they're standing there and they're going, la, 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 Jesus, you're Satan. I don't care. Blah, don't, don't talk to me. Okay? Now, now, we probably wouldn't call Jesus Satan, but we can call him a liar. We can call him evil. We can call him stupid. See, back in the day, calling someone Satan was pretty bad. Today, we have other names to call people, but the attitude is the same. It's outright rejection. It's like, Jesus, Jesus, you must be a liar because there's no way I am wrong. So you must be wrong. It's not that you can't believe. It's that you won't. You're listening to me now. We're giving you evidence to consider as, as you think about your worldview and you just aren't interested. The answer is no, no. That's the Pharisees. They have no logical explanation for Jesus. I mean, Jesus blows their argument out of the water. The next thing he'll say, when they begin saying, you must be in league with Satan, he, he basically says, okay, let's assume you're right. And I am a, an agent of Satan. Why would Satan ever cast out his own demons from people? Why would he give up ground like that? Why would he do anything that results in good for someone? Evil does evil. That's it. He says, a bad tree bears bad fruit. Evil does evil. And if you can't explain me away with Satan, which you can't, then I must be on God's side. And that's what I've been trying to tell you, but you're still not listening to me. And then he gives them this terrifying warning. I don't, I don't know if you picked up on it. He says, blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. By which Jesus essentially means, it's fine if you misunderstand me, if you say bad things about me, if you question me, that's fine, because you can still repent and you can still find forgiveness from that. But if you begin to call the good that God is doing in the world evil, if you look at the, at the freedom of a man from oppression and tyranny in his life, like this man in the story, if you begin to look even at the forgiveness that God offers you and you see it as evil in your own eyes, there is nothing the Son of Man can do for you. He can't, 
he, he can't change your mind on that. It's like sawing off the branch you're standing on. That's the danger. And that's where the Pharisees are. They've crossed the line with Jesus. And he is warning them that they are in very serious trouble now. Because how do you convince someone to change their mind when they've already decided to reject you? How do you have a conversation with someone? And Jesus basically looks at the Pharisees. He says, listen, I'm going to die. And then in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And you still won't believe me. And you know what? That's in Matthew 28, you, could, you can turn there later today when these same religious leaders, they find the empty tomb. You know what they say? They say, oh, the disciples stole the body. Which makes absolutely no sense. This is not an intellectual problem. There isn't enough evidence in the world to convince someone who is unwilling to change their mind. So if you have yet to follow Jesus, but you're here and you're curious, ask, really ask yourself, what's holding you back? Is it that you can't believe? Or is it that you won't? Is it that the evidence isn't compelling for you? Or is it the cost of following him is too high? So you've got to call him a liar. You've got to call him a demon. You've got to call him anything but Lord so that you can walk away. Is there something in your life maybe that you know will have to change? If you say yes to him. So instead of changing your life, you're rejecting him instead. And now listen to me. I am not saying that you can't come with questions or doubts. That's not at all what I'm saying. This warning is not for people with lots of questions about Jesus. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. This warning is for people who have no questions. Who are ready to turn their back on him without a second thought. That's who this is for. So ask yourself, honestly, would anything convince me to follow Jesus? And if the answer is no, then you are dangerously close to just outright rejecting Jesus. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you are closer to the second way in this text that you, we can make Jesus the devil. And then this, the second way is passive indifference. Passive indifference. And you really see this in verse 30 when Jesus says, Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And when you, when you read this verse, it's surrounded by all these other kind of bizarre and shocking statements in this chapter. And so it's easy to miss, but, but think about this. What Jesus is saying is that it is, there is no neutral human position in relation to him. None. There's no neutrality. You're either with him or you're against him. There's no middle ground with him. And as dangerous as it is to stubbornly outright reject Jesus, just say no. It is equally dangerous to not follow him wholeheartedly or to simply be uninterested in him. There's no, yeah, I'm, I'm cool with Jesus. He was, you know, there's some stuff I disagree with him on, but he was a really good guy back in the day. There's acceptance or there's rejection. To be neutral on Jesus is actually to make him the devil. And there's lots of ways this can look in your life. Maybe uh, you're here and you're young uh, maybe you're a student or child of, of a believing family. Or maybe you're, you're, you're just kind of early on in life and you're, 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 you, you think, I've got time. I'll think about Jesus later. Right now, I just don't care. I just want to have fun. I want to do what I want. And I'll come back to this later. Or it, it might be all this religious stuff, right? It just doesn't, make, it doesn't matter. There's all these religions. We can't know what's true. So let's just love each other and be happy and do good. That's what life is about. Okay, whatever it might look like for you, the point is neutrality around Jesus is just not possible. 
And honestly, as I thought about, that, about this this week, honestly, one of the biggest myths in Western culture right now is the myth of neutrality when it comes to truth. You know, somehow we have come to believe that agnosticism, right, I don't know, is kind of the neutral, natural state of all people and that only crazy people believe in God or heaven or hell or they believe in anything supernatural with any amount of conviction. But that's just not how life works. There's no neutrality about the nature of truth. You have to take a stand. See, as much as I might want to remain neutral on whether my body needs oxygen or not, I, I, I can't. I just can't. I can't say, well, I'm just not sure if oxygen is good or bad for me. And so until, I'm, I'm gonna, but I'm gonna figure it out later until then I'm gonna hold my breath. I can't do that. I have to make a choice. I have to make a decision. Truth is like oxygen. I need it to live. I have to know. I have to make a decision about what is true and what is not, about what is good and what is bad. I have to know what is life all about? What is my life for? What happens when I die? What's the nature of my life? I have to have an answer. You must have truth to live. And if that's true, you cannot afford to be wrong. None of us can. Whether you're an atheist or an agnostic or a Buddhist or a Christian, you are betting your life that you are right. There's just no way around it. Even if your thought is we can't know the truth, you're assuming that that's okay. Where's that written? You see, we have to make a choice. And if we're wrong, we've lost everything. That is simply what it means to be human for every single one of us. Neutrality is an illusion. Don't believe it. And perhaps even more importantly, Jesus won't allow us to be neutral about him. He is the unique religious figure in history that forces the issue with you. He forces it on you. He is not a religious teacher who says, I've, I've gotten a word from God and here I'm going to give it to you and you can take it or leave it. He is not someone who comes along and says, I found the true path to wisdom or I found the path to enlightenment and if you follow my ways and, and make it your own, you too can, he's, he claims to be God himself come down to forgive you. He is either completely evil, completely insane, or he's God himself. And no human being can be neutral about him. You have to take a stand. You cannot like him in parts or pieces. He didn't want you to. He hasn't left that option for you. So ask yourself, have you taken him seriously or, or do you just not care? Have you really considered that you have no choice but to answer the question, who is Jesus? You must. And that everything depends on your answer to that question. Or are you just indifferent? I don't care. Not important. So have you taken him seriously? There's one more way we can make Jesus the devil in our lives. <clears throat> and that's self-centered manipulation. Do you see it in this text as well? You'll see it later in chapter 12 and verse 38. Some of the Pharisees and the scribes, they come up to Jesus and they're trying to be polite. They say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, essentially what they're asking Jesus is, is say, yet again, Jesus, prove to us who you are. Give us a sign to validate your authority over us. Prove to me that you are worth following and then I might listen to you. Give me a sign. And if you've ever caught yourself saying or thinking, Jesus, I'll follow you if, 
then this might be you. Jesus, fix my marriage, my children, my job, my finances, fix my addiction, whatever it is, and then I will follow you. Prove you are worthy to me, Jesus, and then I will listen to you. And the danger with this is it can look a lot like belief. It really can. Until tragedy strikes or you don't get what you want, or Jesus disappoints you, or the church disappoints you, and you're gone. You only wanted Jesus because he had access to something else you wanted more. Something more important to you. So when the Pharisees and the scribes, they ask him for yet another sign, Jesus, all he can do is look back at them and say, you get the sign of Jonah. That's what you get. He says, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to defeat death by rising from the dead, and you still won't believe me. You want a sign? I'm going to give you the ultimate sign. But it doesn't matter. Listen, when you ask Jesus for a sign, he, he really might indulge you. He might solve your problem. I've seen it happen. He might heal the addiction or the financial problems. They're gone. After, after a, a simple half-hearted prayer, he responds to you. Sometimes he'll do that and sometimes he won't. But in every case, Jesus will always point you to his empty tomb. And if the empty tomb is not enough for you, then nothing ever will be. If the truth that the Son of God became man and died on a cross and rose from the dead is not enough for you, nothing will be. You'll always be one hardship, one disappointment away from abandoning him. So ask yourself, what are your prerequisites for Jesus? What outside of his resurrection from the dead does he still need to do to get your attention or to keep your attention? And if you struggle to believe in the resurrection, have you really considered it? Have you looked at the evidence? Have you read the eyewitness testimony that we call the New Testament? Or are you waiting on God to have a burning bush for you? Are you waiting on God to prove that he loves you more than he already has in the life, death, and resurrection of his son? Whether we're rejecting Jesus or parts of Jesus or we just don't care or we want something from Jesus, we all have to decide what we think of him. There is no middle ground with him. But Matthew doesn't close this story with those who reject or those who don't care or those who manipulate. He doesn't do that. He closes this story with Jesus extending an offer. Jesus extends an offer to those who reject him, to those who don't listen to him, to those who want something else from him. It's an invitation to us. It's an offer to not be the devil in our lives, but to be our brother. Look at verse 49. Jesus says, or Matthew says, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus is saying, if you choose me, you get more than forgiveness. You get acceptance. I'm not just after your allegiance or your obedience. I want you in my family. That's what Jesus says. That's what he's offering. Just like it says in Hebrews 2, for it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, those who follow him, all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And it, it just, it's amazing to me when you look at these stories how hard the Pharisees are working to reject Jesus. They are working so 
heart and how easy it is to make him your brother. How excited Jesus gets at even the smallest expression of faith in him in these stories. How imperfect and flawed people, people who still don't really know who he is, are joining his family because their hearts are open to him. I mean, Jesus points to these disciples. This is who he's talking about. He says, these are my brothers and my sisters. Even though he routinely calls them, you of little faith. (laughs) These are flawed, ignorant, and weak people just like we are, but they've put their trust in him. They're not neutral to him. And he calls them his family. See, there are many reasons to take Jesus seriously, to not reject him, to consider him, to not make him the devil in your life, but the most important one, I think, is that there is no one who loves you like he does. And there is no family like the one he offers to you in the world. Now, Jesus only hints at this here in this image of the family, but I want to remind you of a story Jesus tells. It's perhaps his most famous story that he tells. It's about family. It's about his family and our place in it. It's often called the parable of the prodigal son. But a better name for it, for our purposes, is just as accurate as the parable of the broken family. And like all of Jesus' parables, this is, this is, a, this is meant to be this, the story of the whole world he's telling in this parable. He says there, there was a father, he had two sons. The younger son hated his father and he demanded his inheritance, which is like telling your parents today, I wish you would die so I could sell the home and liquidate your assets and spend the money. That's what he's doing. He runs off with the money. He spends it on distractions. He never considers that rejecting his father and his family has cost him everything until he has nothing. And then half starved and barely surviving, he realizes I need to return to my father as a servant or a slave because even that's better than, than what I'm doing now. And the father is waiting for him. He sees him coming down the road back. And he embarrasses, he shames himself. He kind of picks up his robes. He runs out to his son before he's made it home. He hugs him and he kisses him. And he welcomes him back, not as a slave, but as a son. Despite all, uh, everything he's done, despite all the dishonor he's brought on his family, But the older brother is angry. He is angry that his father would ever take this son back. He is also angry that accepting this son back will come at great personal financial cost to him. Because now he's got to spend his inheritance on him. Now Jesus tells this story in the context of other stories called parables. And every one of them is about something that is lost. And someone has to go out and find it. The shepherd goes out to get the lost sheep. The woman goes out to find the lost coin, but here no one goes out to find the lost son. Why? What is he hinting at? He is saying, this is what he's saying that the world and you and I are like a son or a daughter who has abandoned their father. We've taken his love and his gifts and the life he created for us and we've squandered it and we've rejected him and we're indifferent to him and we hate him and we're lost and someone has to come find us. We need a brother. We need a brother who loves his father so much that he would leave everything behind at great personal cost to himself, even his own inheritance, to bring us back, to put us back in the family. What we really need is someone who, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God the Father something to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. And dying on a cross brings many sons and many daughters back into the family. And this, more than anything else, is why we must choose Jesus, because a brother like that, a love like that, an offer like this, you will search in vain in the philosophies and the theories and the thoughts of our day for something like that. You will not find it. God's son, your brother, come to find you and bring you back. Now maybe you're not ready to say this is true. I get it, but don't you want it to be true? Many of us here today, for for lots of reasons, we came here, we entered here as orphans. We lived like prodigals. We've lived like we have no father. Or we lived like we've got something to prove to our father before we can return to him. We've come here as orphans. But we don't have to leave as orphans. We can leave as brothers. We can leave with a father. We can have a family, this family, sitting around you now. Your brother Jesus, he's coming after you right now. He has been your whole life whether you know it or not. And we can turn our backs on him. We can reject him. We can not care. We can manipulate him. Or we can come home with him. What will we choose? Let's pray. Father, don't let us walk away this morning without considering your son. By your spirit, move in our hearts in a new way to see him and recognize him for who he is. Not simply a religious figure or a person of history, but as your divine son, our older brother, who left everything behind to come and to find us and bring us back to you. Give us grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.